Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject all this week. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I will be answering your questions and offering you advice and talking about some really fun, hot topics. Some of you may actually know me from VH1 Couples Therapy with Dr. Jen or VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen, or you might have heard me on the radio on the Dr. Jen Show for many years. I'm an author. I am the writer of The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's Six-Step Guide to Improving Communication, Connection, and Intimacy. Also, Super Baby, 12 Ways to Give Your Child a Head Start in the First Three Years, The A to Z Guide to Raising Happy, Confident Kids. And I also wrote a children's book called Rockin' Babies that I co-wrote with my mom, Grammy Award-winning songwriter Cynthia Weil. I've got a weekly column in InStyle magazine called Hump Day with Dr. Jen. I'm the mother of twins, but most importantly, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and I'm here to answer all of your questions about anything and everything that is on your mind and that you struggle with. Feel free to email me your questions at ask. Dr. Jen at drjenman.com, two ends on Jen, two ends on man, or post them on my social media at Dr. Jen Man, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. One of the things I want to talk about today on Drop the Subject is a topic that I'm seeing come up a lot on social media. I'm hearing it a lot in my private practice in the office. I'm hearing a lot of people just talk about it out and about, and that is the topic of emotional eating. And I think during this pandemic, it's become a particularly big topic because there are a lot of people who are home and who are under enormous stress. And, you know, our relationship with food is complex. We have a lot of associations between food and emotions, you know, and they they start really early. They start when we are a baby being cuddled at the breast, if we are lucky or whether we're having breast milk or formula, that we have these associations of food and meaning and emotion. And it makes a whole lot of sense that when we are under enormous stress, we tend to turn to food for comfort, for distraction, for self-soothing. And when we do this, we tend to kind of tune out our body's signals of hunger and satiation so that we can just eat. We stop eating to satisfy a physical need, and we start to attempt to use food to do something else that is not necessarily really meant to do. And sometimes that can feel really good in the moment. It satisfies our need for distraction, for comfort, for excitement. But afterwards, we tend to feel bad. And what tends to happen is it creates this vicious cycle of we feel bad. So then we eat. Then we feel bad that we ate or overate or we are too stuffed. And then we eat because we feel bad. And it just gets into this really negative loop. So. What do you do to break the cycle? The first thing that I recommend you do is tune into your hunger. Think of your hunger on a scale from zero to 10. 10 is the fullest you've ever been. Thanksgiving full, your stomach is going to split open. Zero is you're passed out on the floor from hunger. Five is neutral. What you want to do is try to eat when you're a three, which is hungry. You know you're hungry. If you're not sure if you're hungry, you're probably a four. If you've passed that point of, yeah, I'm hungry and you're into, I'm nauseous, I'm dizzy, I feel faint, you're at a two. If you are at that point where you are cranky, you can't think of anything else, you're at a one, you've gone too far. If you let yourself get hungrier than a three, you're probably going to overeat. And if you let yourself get more full than a five or a six, you're going to be uncomfortable. A six is, yeah, I know I have food in my stomach. A seven is I'm full. An eight is I'm stuffed. And a nine is my stomach is getting ready to burst. So really try to tune in on your hunger and notice those nuances. The next thing is don't be black and white. Don't get that all or nothing kind of binge attitude. If you think that you have to be perfect, you're far more likely to get into that mentality. I already blew it. I might as well eat the whole pint. Be gentle with yourself if you don't do this perfectly. The third thing is recognize a desperate moment. We turn to food when we're out of other resources. Understand that if you are overeating, if you are eating too much, you got to give yourself a break and be gentle. If beating yourself up would get you to stop, then you would have done it by now. Instead, try something different. Try being gentle. Try addressing the underlying issue. Try talking about the pain, the feelings, the fear, whatever it is that's coming up. 
which leads me to the next thing, which is get to the bottom of what's going on. There's so much to be stressed out about. Try to pinpoint what's causing you the most anxiety. If you need to journal, then try journaling or reading a great book like Breaking Free from Emotional Eating, which is by Janine Roth, which I'm a big fan of. You know, you may want to check out, I have an app called No More Diets, and it really helps. There are a lot of exercises to address what is underlying the eating issues. The next thing is be a conscious eater. Turn off the screen, eat without distraction, really allow yourself to taste the food, enjoy the texture. You're going to have the food experience. Make it the best possible experience you can have. The next thing is practice good self-care. If you're someone who's used to turning to food in difficult moments, breaking the connection between food and feelings can be challenging. Really try to focus in on self-care activities. In my No More Diets app, I have 150 different self-care activities. Even if you don't download the app, just make your own list and make it a living list that you can constantly add to and put it someplace where you can see it. Later today, I'm going to be having a guest on named Dr. Tracy Mann, no relation to me, who has written a book called Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. She has a lot of fascinating research that will help you to better understand your relationship with food, what you need to do to do things differently, to break habits, what is realistic, what's not and to also help you really examine that self-blame stuff that tends to come up around food. Make your own list and make it. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm sitting in for Allie and Dr. James while they are on vacation here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, I'm answering a question from Nick, who is having trouble getting past the rejection of his first male love nine years later. Don't go anywhere. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, and I am filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject all this week. I'll be answering your questions and offering you advice. I'm a licensed psychotherapist. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I got this very interesting email from, we'll call him John Doe, who is having a very, very difficult time letting go of a first love from many years ago. I think a lot of people can relate to that whole thing of not getting closure with someone. Here's what he says. When the person who got you best out of anyone wants nothing to do with you and won't have a conversation for closure, and you still think that they are a noble person, how do you move on? I can accept being an ex, but without a conversation, set in the reality of, here's why I did what I did so many years ago. I associate sexuality as a bad thing and feel it's only done me harm because if I weren't gay, we wouldn't have had the highs, but we wouldn't have had the lows and the scars. I realized I was gay when we were falling out in our friendship. I accepted why the relationship mattered so much to me, where I came out to myself and to him. He presented himself as straight. We never did anything physically, but had a deep emotional connection with hidden aspects of our relationship between him and I that would raise eyebrows. I've done the work over many years in therapy, in many types of therapy. Nine years after falling out, I can't get past my first love. And I feel like without a conversation for closure, he refuses to have I won't be able to get over the damage. First of all, John, we got to look at this. We got to unpack this bag because how is it noble to ghost someone who you had such a meaningful connection with? According to you, it sounds like you and this guy at the very least were the closest of friends and that you came out to him. He was one of the first people you talked to about this. There were deep feelings, even if nothing happened sexually. It sounds like there was a very deep and profound connection. Look, it's possible that only you felt it, but I get the feeling that it was pretty mutual and that it might have even scared this guy and made him pull back. But you really have to look at how you define noble. 
How is it noble to refuse to speak to someone and give them closure? How is it noble to ghost someone? How is it noble to refuse to give someone closure when you've had such a close relationship? So I think the first thing that you need to do is to realize that you are idealizing this man. There's a lot of projection here. And when I say projection, what I mean is that we make assumptions and we fill in the gaps with other people. And we assume that they feel a certain way or are doing something a certain way or that they are someone that they're not. And I think that when you say this is someone who's noble, I think it is noble to have a conversation with someone and say, hey, this is why the relationship didn't work. I think it's quite cowardly to refuse to have a conversation. I think that you have put him on a very unrealistic pedestal. And I think that it is doing harm to your emotional being and that you have to really look at taking him off of this pedestal. He is human. And how great that you had these feelings with him that helped you to come out of the closet, that this was a really wonderful growing experience for you. It's something that inspired you to be true to yourself. It helped you to realize your sexual identity. And I think that's a beautiful thing. What a gift. And maybe that is the purpose that this relationship was supposed to serve for you. Maybe it's not really about this guy. Maybe it's about what you were supposed to get out of it. And you've already gotten that. Sometimes closure has to come from within you. You can't rely on the other person to heal you. You have to heal yourself. One thing that you said that really concerned me is you said that you associate sexuality with being negative. And you said if you weren't gay, that you wouldn't have the lows and the scars. And I need to give you a reality check. That is not true. Pain and suffering are part of the human condition, and they are part of relationships. No matter how much we love someone, no matter how great a relationship may be, we cause each other pain and suffering. And that when you love intensely, a lot of the time you get hurt intensely. And I think it's important for your mental health for you to untangle your sexuality from this pain connection, that this is part of relationships. And when we love, we take a risk. And part of that risk is we may be hurt. We may be rejected. Things may not work out. And that has nothing to do with being gay, straight, bi, anything. It's just the risk we take when we love and when we love deeply. I'm thrilled that you're in therapy. And I think that it is really important. If you take nothing out of this call, other than what I'm about to say, I'll be pleased. You have to decide that you can and will get over the damage. No therapist can help you until you are open to the possibility that you can do the work to heal on your own. Most people in life don't have the luxury of a healing conversation with an ex, and most people have to do that work on their own. You can do that. You're no different. But it is 100% up to you to decide to change the way you view this. Only you can do that. You can have the best therapist in the world. You can meet with every therapist in the world. But until you decide that you're going to heal and you're going to get over the damage and you're going to do it without this guy, without words from him, no one can help you. But the good news is once you make that decision, you are on the path to healing. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. Coming up after this break, I'm going to be answering an email from Mary, whose self-confidence is preventing her from pursuing her dreams. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and the author of The Relationship Fix, Dr. Jen's six-step guide to improving communication, connection, and intimacy. I will be filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject all week long while they are on vacation. They will be back before you know it. But until then, I will be answering all of your questions and offering you advice. And I have a email here from someone who we're going to call Mary, who asked a really interesting question about self-esteem and about goal setting. And she writes and she says, Dr. Jen, I'm having a rough time figuring out what I want from life. And I've been really down on myself lately. I want to take a chance and really pursue what I want, but I don't have the confidence or motivation to bet on myself. What advice can you give? 
Mary. Well, Mary, the first thing you want to do is look at what prevents you from having confidence. You know, typically we are born with confidence and we have experiences throughout our lives that tends to, when we don't have confidence, wear away at our confidence. You know, the first place where we are supposed to get confidence from is from our parents. That our parents are our first mirrors, as we call them in psychology. That when, as a child, we look at our parents to see if we are lovable, if we are good enough, if we are worthy. And when we don't get that mirroring back, it can affect our confidence. But there are a lot of other ways throughout our life where we can have our confidence and our self-esteem eroded. So the first thing I would recommend you do is really try to look at what is it from your past that has prevented you from having self-esteem and from having confidence. And well, you can do a lot of self-reflection and you can do some bibliotherapy, you can read books on self-esteem, you can do workbooks. I always recommend therapy. So the next part of this is you need to work on your confidence. And what you need to do is to really change the way you see yourself and to look at the things you do, the messages you send yourself, the way you behave in your life and how those things make you feel. The first thing that I want you to look at is esteemable acts. What do you do in your life that helps breed your self-esteem? When we are of service to other people, that's an esteemable act. When we pursue something that we are passionate about and we master it, that's an esteemable act. There are a lot of things throughout our day and throughout our life that we do that can make us feel good about ourselves. But sometimes when we don't have the confidence, we don't take those chances. We don't reach out and help someone that could ultimately result in us feeling really good about ourselves. We don't take a chance and take a risk to learn something new, which could actually make us feel good. And also sometimes the road to mastery is filled with rejection. It's filled with not succeeding, with failure, with all kinds of stuff. But we have to learn to tolerate that in order to develop self-esteem. I think that it's actually far more powerful to try to do something and fail over and over again and then overcome it and achieve that, to me, that brings far more self-esteem. The other thing that you want to really look at is your own self-talk. How do you talk to yourself? And a lot of the time we talk to ourselves in ways that we would never talk to someone else. There's an exercise that I recommend that everybody do who wants to change their self-talk. Take a piece of paper, good old fashioned piece of paper, although I guess you could technically could do it on your computer or your phone, but divide it into two. On the left hand side, write down the negative things that you say to yourself. And every time one comes up, write down something negative. On the right hand side, I want you to write the counter to that negative self-talk. And here's the thing. You don't have to believe it at first. What matters is that you are saying it, that you're repeating it to yourself, because the way this works is that we all have kind of like a healthy self and an unhealthy self. That's like the angel and the devil on our shoulders in the cartoons. And the unhealthy self, when we don't fight against it, we feed it without even knowing it. And it gets bigger and bigger and louder and louder. And what we have to do is elicit that healthy self and that healthy voice that fights back. And again, you don't have to believe it. And if you don't know what to say, then ask yourself, what would my best friend say to this voice about me? What would my mother say? Whoever it is in your life that loves you and supports you, ask yourself who would say this. The other thing is surround yourself with people who support you and bring out the best in you. Sometimes, especially if we come from an unhealthy family system, or we've been through a lot of trauma, there's a tendency to surround ourselves with people who don't necessarily bring out the best in us, who aren't there to support us, who aren't there as cheerleaders for us, who don't necessarily want us to succeed. Sometimes even the people we bring into our lives can pull us down and really do an assessment and look at who in your life is there for you and who supports you and who isn't. And it's time to do some summer cleaning, not really spring, <laughs> summer cleaning. And last but not least, don't wait to have the confidence. In AA, they talk a lot about act as if. 
ask yourself, if I had confidence, what would I do now? And just do it. Don't wait to feel like someone who is confident. Just do it anyway, because that is ultimately how we develop confidence. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm sitting in for Allie and Dr. James. We have more Drop the Subject coming up next. Don't go anywhere. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I am here today filling in for Allie and Dr. James while they are on vacation. I am taking your calls. I'm talking about news. We are addressing some hot topics. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, all at Dr. Jen Mann, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So there's been some very interesting Britney news lately. If you haven't heard, what's going on is that Britney has asked the court to appoint Jody Montgomery as her permanent conservator and that she does not want her dad, Jamie Spears, who has had control over his daughter's life and career and been her appointed person by the court since 2008. And in the meanwhile, the ACLU has gotten involved, the American Civil Liberties Union, and they're saying that people with disabilities have a right to leave self-directed lives and retain their civil rights. They said in a tweet on Wednesday, if Britney Spears wants to regain her civil liberties and get out of her conservativeship, we are here to help her. Apparently, Britney, and many of you have probably heard, has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which is... I guess that the media has some have said, yes, she was officially diagnosed. Others have said, no, it's not an official diagnosis, but that her mental health issues are fairly legendary and historic going back for many, many years, about 12 years now. But apparently she's asked the court on Tuesday to remove her dad as her sole conservator. And just in case you don't know what that means, a conservatorship in some states, they're called a guardianship is where a person is granted care over an adult who the court determines cannot care for himself or herself or manage his or her own finances. So, you know, since the meltdown about 12 years ago, her father has been in charge of her estate. At one point, he was not able to continue doing that because of his own illness. And one thing that's really interesting in all of this is that apparently... Last August, Brittany's 13-year-old son was with, I guess, Kevin Federline, his father, and Jamie Spears allegedly came to the house, got into some kind of fight with the 13-year-old boy, knocked down a door, and was accused of child abuse. They filed charges against him. So, you know, you got to wonder, does that have anything to do with Brittany not wanting her father to be in charge? How mentally and emotionally stable is her father that he is so impulsive and is so rageful that he's behaving like this when he did something like this? Was he of sound mind? Was he on a substance? What exactly was going on? Um, I have spent many years as a psychotherapist doing consulting for celebrities and uh, child stars. I work for a minor consideration, which is founded by Paul Peterson. And they do a lot of work helping child stars. And what I've seen over the years is that the relationship between celebrity children, even as they grow up to be adults like Britney, and their parents is a very complicated one. When you have a child like Britney, who is making more money than their parents, and then their parents are involved in their career, the power shifts, and that it's very difficult for the parents to stay the parents, and not to mention that it is not uncommon for parents to take advantage of these situations, and I'm not saying that Jamie Spears is or isn't. We just don't know enough, but I do think that it is a fascinating dynamic, and it will be very interesting to see what happens, whether she is able to get this other person to be in charge of her conservatorship if the ACLU steps in and to know exactly what's going on if we ever do. But either way, my heart goes out to Brittany and I hope that she is able to get the help that she needs and get to a point where she is able and capable and stable enough to take care of her own financial business and her career and her life. 
I'm Dr. Jen Mann sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, I'm answering a question from a woman whose daughter's father is a drug addict and actually ignores the daughter even when they're both in the same home. She needs some advice and I can understand why, because what a painful situation to be in, but I've got a lot to say about it. Drop the subject, the new channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. You may know me from VH1 Couples Therapy or VH1 Family Therapy with Dr. Jen. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and I am here filling in for Allie and Dr. James on vacation, but I'm here with you on Drop the Subject all day, all week. You and me, lots of questions, lots of advice, lots of talk. I'll be answering your questions and offering you tons of advice. You can find me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann. Two ends on Jen, two ends on man. And I have lots of information on my social media about how you can submit questions to me or get on the air to ask me a question. Well, this person here has already asked me a question. We're going to call her Josephina. And she writes me with a very, very painful question about her daughter. She says, I have a seven-year-old daughter going on eight. Her father has not been present in her life. He is addicted to drugs. We broke up when she was four years old. He and I have had a lot of issues in the past. We fought all the time, and it got to the point where I had to get a restraining order and ignore his calls back in 2016. There's a lot more to him and me. It feels like a long story to get into. My daughter still feels upset and angry, which I don't blame her for. I'm not too sure why he doesn't even try to make contact with her. She goes over to his mom's place and he's there in a different part of the house and he doesn't even try to talk to her or engage in any way. She has only seen him four times throughout the four years he hasn't been in her life. He doesn't work. He doesn't care about his appearance. To be honest, I think he doesn't care about life. This goes back to his addiction. My question to you is, if you believe that it's okay to try to make contact with him on my end, I would like to try and help him with rehab and mental health problems, but I'm not too sure how we will go about this since we have not spoken or really seen each other in four years. Okay, Josefina, there's a lot here to talk about. Um, First of all, you say here, I'm not too sure why he doesn't even try to make contact with her. You know why he doesn't make contact with her. He is an active drug addict. And right now he is in the midst of the throes of his addiction. And that is where his focus is. And when someone is still actively abusing drugs, as your ex-husband is, that is all they can think about. It's all they care about. They don't care about people because they need to just know where their next fix is coming from. And drugs can change a person and make them not connected, make them behave badly, make them abandon the people and things that were most important to them. And it sounds like your ex-husband is the perfect example. It does sound like he has a history of being violent with you. You mentioned that there was a restraining order involved. You don't mention if he was violent in front of your daughter or to your daughter, but it sounds like it was towards you. Here are my thoughts. You know, first of all, why is your daughter even in the same home that he's in when he's there? I don't think that that is good for her. You know, children are egocentric. And what that means is that children think that everything that happens is about them. And that's not narcissism. That's healthy, normal development. That if a father has abandoned his daughter The way she internalizes that is, there must be something wrong with me. I must not be lovable. I must not be fill in the blank. And those are messages that we take to adulthood if they don't get dealt with and corrected and ideally even therapized when we are young. And so your daughter, I'm sure, is very angry at him for abandoning her. And what my concern is, is I don't want that anger to get turned inward towards herself. And I think it's very important that you start really working on your messaging to her. She's almost eight years old. I have a feeling she's probably pretty savvy. And you need to start presenting the information to her that daddy is sick. 
Daddy has a sickness called addiction. And that there is nothing wrong with you. You are lovable. You're amazing. I feel so blessed and lucky to be your mommy. And I feel really sad for him that he doesn't get to spend time with such an amazing, incredible person. That that's the kind of messaging that I want for you to be sending to her. It sounds like his parents are enabling him, that he's living in the house, not having a job, disheveled, probably using drugs. And I don't think that that's something that you want your daughter around. And when you ask the question, should you try to help him? Should you reach out to him? I have a feeling that you probably tried to help him for many years while you were married. I think that you have better places to put your energy at this point. This guy has not hit rock bottom. He's not asking for help. He has parents there who are enabling him. And if he wants help, he can go to them. I think it's the wrong message to model to your daughter that we chase after drug addicts who ignore us. I think the focus now needs to be teaching your daughter about her value and about how great she is, helping her deal with her anger and her hurt and her perceived rejection from her father, and to understand as a mother that that rejection can have lasting effects. So it's our job as moms to do everything that we can to help counteract that harm and that pain that she's going through. You know, when she's a little bit older, there's a group called Alateen. It's like Al-Anon, except it's for teenagers. And that would be a great place for her to go to really understand addiction. Also, given that she has his genetics and he's an addict, you want to start to enlighten her and educate her about addiction early on because she could be very susceptible between the pain of losing her father that, that she will ultimately, if she doesn't deal with, probably want to numb. And aspect of that addiction, some believe, is genetic. We want to make sure to really send these messages and help her and heal her early on. So keep in mind, it doesn't seem like he has hit rock bottom. It doesn't seem like he wants help. And that's not your job to rescue him. But it is your job as a mom to help your daughter to heal. And it sounds like that's really high on your agenda and what you ultimately want to do, that you would even be willing to try to help someone who you had to file a restraining order against shows what a dedicated and devoted mother you are. But let's keep your focus on your daughter and her healing. I'm Dr. Jen Mann sitting in for Allie and Dr. James here on Drop the Subject. Coming up next, a very interesting interview with Dr. Tracy Mann, no relation to me, who's going to discuss her book, Secrets from the Eating Lab. She's going to tell you everything you need to know to lose weight, to have a healthy relationship with food, to understand motivation, willpower, and why every time you lose those five pounds, they just seem to come back on. I'll be right back here on Channel Q. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am here with Dr. Tracy Mann. No relation, even though it's spelled the same way with two N's. She is the author of Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. She's a professor of social and health psychology at the University of Minnesota. She's got a PhD from Stanford. She founded the Eating Lab, where researchers study the science of weight loss, eating habits, obesity, and our relationship with food. What I love about her is that she really focuses on science-based information about what we can do to lose weight and have a healthier relationship with food. Make sure you check out her book. It's absolutely fantastic. And also check out her website, which is secretsfromtheeatinglab.com. Tracy, welcome to Drop the Subject. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me and saying such nice things. Oh, it is my pleasure. For those who are listening who don't know about any of this stuff that you do and don't know what the Eating Lab is, can you explain to start with what is the Eating Lab and how is it relevant to people at home who have their own struggles with their relationship with food? Sure. I mean, the Eating Lab, it's actually called the Health and Eating Lab, and that's my lab at the University of Minnesota, where we study all kinds of things that affect people's eating, regular people's eating, just everyday garden variety eating. And we think of that really broadly. So we look at things that help you control your eating and what we found over the years is that 
nothing really helps you control your eating very well, except for changing your circumstances so that you're not sort of coming face to face with tempting food. Mm-hmm. So for years and years, we tested out things that might help people resist a food that's right in front of them. And those things never worked. We'll get into it. But all the strategies that we've come up with have to do with never coming face to face with that temptation. Yeah, it's by my partner, Eric, is vegan. He does 10% fat. He does like no sugar. He's like very Dean Ornish. And he literally will have me lock up food like under lock and key so that he doesn't have to see it so that he's not tempted by it, which very much goes to what you're talking about. Yes. In your book, you really get into what is the problem with diets? Like why shouldn't people Mm -hmm. die? They want to lose weight. What's wrong with dieting? Yeah, absolutely. What we found after studying 60, 70 years of research on diets is that you can lose weight on like pretty much any diet for a little while. But then regardless of what kind of diet it is, on average, the weight comes back for most dieters between two and five years after starting the diet. And some diets work in the short term, but not in the long term. And most people who go on a diet want it to work in the long term, not the short term. Because of that, we say diets don't work um, because they don't lead to lasting weight loss. And we don't think they're worth doing. So that's the what diets don't work. Why? Why don't they work is the important question. And people seem to think that diets don't work because of the dieter. There's something wrong with the dieter that makes the diet not work, but that's not true. The thing that makes a diet not work is dieting. If you go on a diet and you start to lose weight and your body starts to notice that, and once your body starts detecting that not enough calories are coming in, it makes changes your body starts to detect that you might be starving to death. And it makes physiological changes that have the good effect of keeping you alive, keeping you from starving to death, but the annoying effect, if you're trying to lose weight, of making it really, really hard to keep taking off weight and making it really, really easy to regain the weight you lost. So a couple of those things are, um, if you've been calorie deprived for a little while, your metabolism changes. And this is your metabolism trying to save your life, trying to help you stay alive on fewer calories than usual. Mm -hmm. And again, great for keeping you alive in times of famine, perhaps. Not so useful if you're trying to lose weight, because what that means is there's more calories left over for your body to store as fat. And that's true even if you're eating the same number of calories that you used to eat and lose weight with. Metabolism slowing down as you're eating less, which means you have to eat even less. So now your metabolism is probably slowing down more. Yeah. So that's one thing that your body does in response to calorie deprivation. Another set of things your body does is it changes your hormones around. And it does that so that you're more likely to look for and think about and find food. So the hormones that make you feel full, those go down. So you're less likely to feel full. The hormones that make you feel hungry, those go up. You're more likely to feel hungry. And again, it's with the same amount of food that used to make you feel full, no longer does. Well, that makes the dieting much, much harder. Sure. Let me tell you one more category of things. And I alluded to it already, but um, calorie deprivation changes your cognitions. It changes your thinking processes. And what that means is if you're calorie deprived, you're more likely to notice food if it's present. And once you notice food, you become totally focused on the food. And dieters always say they notice this. They basically become preoccupied with thoughts of food. Um, And this is all a result of calorie deprivation. So again, you're trying to diet and all you can do is think of food. That makes the dieting so much harder to do. And look, I agree with this 100%, both clinically and personally. And, And I talked with you a little before we started talking on air about my own experience where you know, I had an eating disorder for 10 years. And during those years, because I was depriving myself of food, I was obsessed. I, like I could think like, even if I was having a conversation with someone that appeared to be a normal conversation, it was constant background noise of what would I eat? What would I have next? What had I eaten? You know, the calories of this, of that, following a non-diet approach like you talk about in your book and you give really science-based evidence about why this works. It creates this horrible loop where you become obsessed, where it's harder to lose weight and where it's all negative. 
This is Dr. Jen Mann. We are here with Dr. Tracy Mann, no relation to me, author of Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. And we'll be right back here on Drop the Subject. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Welcome back to Drop the Subject. I'm Dr. Jen Mann, sitting in for Allie and Dr. James while they are out for this week. I'm here with Dr. Tracy Mann, who is the author of Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower, and Why You Should Never Diet Again. So, Tracy, what do you recommend for people who are looking in the mirror and going, either I'm unhappy with my weight, I'd like to lose weight, or I think that my food choices are really unhealthy and I want to live a long time, and what do I do now? Okay, there's a couple things to say about this. First of all, in my lab, we like to focus on health rather than weight. So at any, at any weight, you could be healthy. And the way you could be healthy at any weight is by behaving in healthy ways, including doing physical activity, eating healthy food choices, uh, and doing things to reduce the stress that you encounter in your life. And if you do those things, you could be healthy at any weight. In general, our first thing that we say to people is, are you sure... You, you really want to lose weight. You know, if you're healthy and behaving in healthy ways, we say, be happy, live your life. And in general, that's how we describe, we say what your perfect weight is. It's whatever you weigh when you're engaging in healthy behavior. Okay, but putting that aside, because I know I'm a human female in this world, I know that people just want to lose weight sometimes. In that circumstance, there's a couple things to think about. One of them is you don't want to try to lose so much weight that you're below your body's sort of set weight range. Okay, your body has sort of a range that it tries to keep you in and it will physically defend that range so that if you go below it, it kind of makes changes that bump you back into it. However, it's a pretty big range. So if you feel like you're kind of at the top of your range, if you feel like you're, you know, you generally weigh 15 pounds less than you're weighing now, but for some reason you're up here, I don't know, maybe it's a pandemic and you know, things that happen. So if you're, if you're feeling like that and you feel like, you know, you're, you're above where you normally are, then you can do some things to help yourself kind of get back down to sort of the lower sort of part of your range. So basically I'm saying be reasonable. Don't try to lose weight below that range, but I get it. You can move around in that range. So the strategies that I recommend have to do with that. It's like, let's help you get to the low end within your range. And what should people do? Absolutely. So those strategies go back to what I started out saying by this whole idea of don't depend on your willpower. You don't have uniquely bad willpower. People, when I tell people I study the self-control of eating, they always say to me, God, wow, that's what I need. I need that. And it's like, yeah, I know everybody needs that. Like people always think like it's just them. So all the strategies that I think about and recommend have to do with making sure you do not come face to face with that donut. Imagine you're in person in the old, the old world, someone brings in a box of donuts and you very strongly resist a donut when they offer it to you. But then the box is sitting on the table. And every time you look over there, you have to resist the donut again. Okay, you have to resist that donut maybe 20 times in one one hour meeting. You know, even if you have eight plus willpower, you're bound to mess up one time in 20. And so in a certain way, probably if you're sheltering in place right now and you can control your environment and you don't have coworkers who are bringing donuts in, yeah. it'd be an easier time to lose weight because you can control your environment. Yes. Assuming that everyone else in your household is not getting in the way of you controlling your environment. Exactly. Yeah. But what we talk about controlling in your environment is putting obstacles between yourself and foods you don't want to be eating and clearing away obstacles between yourself and foods you do want to be eating like vegetables. So in terms of clearing away obstacles, you know, vegetables take a lot of work. They take a lot of effort. They show up and they're dirty. They're dirt. On, they literally have dirt on them. Most of us, okay, I don't know, you're vegan. You probably like vegetables in all forms. Many of us <laughs> we only like our vegetables if we like cook them. Like I'm yeah. not, I'm not like a raw broccoli person. That's, that's yeah. not happening. Cook it and I love it. So with vegetables, you have to deal with them. You have to do all that work. And, you know, if I'm going into the kitchen right now, which is freaking right over there, to have a snack, I'm not going to start preparing broccoli. I'm not going to chop it and clean it and cook it. I'm going to grab the Ritz crackers that I also know are sitting right there. 
So to remove the obstacles between yourself and the and that broccoli, you need to prepare it ahead of time. Of so all a little the- meal prep. Yeah. So that's one way to remove an obstacle between yourself and what you um, do want to eat. Now you're going to put up obstacles between yourself and what you don't want to eat. Um, yeah. So how can you do that? You mentioned some of that before. Well, you mentioned a very extreme obstacle, which was locking yeah. the cupboard, um, having it out of sight, having mm-hmm. it in a cupboard, having it up t- up t- up high in the cupboard is a good idea. Um, don't have it on the counter. Don't have it in a clear container where you can see it. So just do things to make it harder to get to it. And people sometimes say, well, that's such a small obstacle. Why, how is that going to matter? But it does. I mean, there's amazing studies where they show that simply having to straighten your arm to reach a bowl of M&Ms makes you take half as many M&Ms as if you don't have to straighten it. I found that I literally, I have stuff that has been locked up for over a year that I like that I just have been too lazy to like go get the key and open the box. I'm like, oh, I'll have something else instead. So Tracy, thank you so, so much for letting me interview you. I know you say no to a lot of interviews and especially during a pandemic, everybody should go out and get your book, Secrets from the Eating Lab, The Science of Weight Loss, The Myth of Willpower and Why You Should Never Diet Again. There is such a wealth of information about really everybody's relationship with food. Because I think like you pointed out earlier, people are very quick to blame themselves and say, I failed, I'm a failure. And it really impacts people's self-esteem when their relationship with food goes awry. So thank you for bringing this valuable research and information to all of us. People can find you at secretsfromtheeatinglab.com. Make sure to check out her book, make sure to check out her website and Dr. Tracy Mann, no relation to me. Thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Drop the subject. The new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist, filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I am so grateful to all of you for sending me in all of these great questions. You can stay in touch with me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Man, two ends on Jen, two ends on man. So I have a question from someone who we're going to call Chris. And Chris writes and says, what can you do when you work in the mental health field and your supervisor continues to chastise you for not communicating when you're having a depressive episode? And look, right now we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think that Chris is not alone and that a lot of people are really struggling with depression, with anxiety, with mental health issues that are impacting our work. But here's the thing. When you work in the mental health field, you have an especially significant duty to be aware of your own issues that could impact your work and to talk about them with your supervisor. And I think it's really important that Chris reaches out to his or her supervisor and has a conversation to let them know what's going on. This is really the best way to ensure that two things happen. One, that your issues don't negatively impact your work with your clients. And two, your supervisor can give you counsel on how to help you deal with whatever's going on with you and your depression while staying in the field and working with clients. And also your supervisor can then keep an eye on you to make sure that you haven't kind of crossed the line in terms of your work and how it is harming your own ability to be there for your clients. If you find that your depression is so bad that you can't fulfill your work obligations, you may need to take a leave of absence. Sometimes people have to do that and there is no shame in that. It's really important that we are aware of our own stuff, whether you're in the mental health field or not, but especially if you are, to be in touch with yourself, to be able to kind of take your emotional temperature, to know where you're at, when you're capable of helping, and when you're not capable of helping is very important. If you find that it's impacting your relationship with your supervisor, it's probably impacting your work with your clients, which isn't fair to them. So the other part is, what are you doing to address the problem? Are you in therapy? Have you gotten a meds evaluation to see if maybe you might need to be on an antidepressant? Or if you are on one, if maybe you need to change your dose or change medications? Are you doubling down on your self-care? What are you doing right now to take care of yourself and make sure that this doesn't escalate? And also to make sure that it doesn't hurt your work with your clients, which is most important. 
even if you're not in the mental health field, we all have a responsibility to ourselves and the people we work with, not to mention the people we live with, the people we love, to recognize and take action when it comes to our own mental health issues, if they are impacting our relationships, our work. And look, we're in a pandemic. Most people are struggling to some extent. So don't feel bad about your struggle. Instead, take that energy because to me, I always say it's, it's, it's a waste. You know, it's like you feel bad and then you feel bad for feeling bad on top of that. Like there's no reason to do that. That's just a waste of our valuable energy. It's okay. We all have our struggles right now. But what you got to do is take that energy and put that into self-care, self-help. If you're someone who has the same struggle that Chris is having and you are in a situation where you're not in the mental health field, talk to HR. Talk to the appropriate person so that you can make sure that you have really covered your bases and make sure to take care of yourself. That's really crucial in all of this. I'm Dr. Jen Mann. I am sitting in for Allie and Dr. James, and we have more Drop the Subject coming up next. Drop the Subject, the new Channel Q. Hey there, I'm Dr. Jen Mann, licensed psychotherapist. I'm filling in for Allie and Dr. James on Drop the Subject. I am so grateful to all of you for sending me your fantastic questions. On today's show, we talked about weight, body image, getting closure after a relationship has ended, self-esteem, goal setting, co-parenting, addiction. I also talked to Dr. Tracy Mann, no relation to me, who has created the eating lab that is all about how to have healthy habits and how we lose weight actually using research to do it. If you missed that interview or any of this, check it out on the podcast. Just search Drop the Subject wherever you find your podcast or at radio.com. Again, I'm Dr. Jen Mann. Thank you so much for tuning in with me. Well, Allie and Dr. James are out on vacation. They will be back on Monday. Till then, I'm here with you and Also, once they are back, you can hear me every week on Drop the Subject, talking to Allie and Dr. James. You can follow me on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and Snapchat at Dr. Jen Mann and the show at DTS, as in Drop the Subject show. See you tomorrow. On the next, on the next, drop the subject. Hey, it's Dr. Jen. I'm a licensed therapist and I'm here to answer all your questions. All week, I'll be taking your calls and answering your emails and giving you free advice. So listen here on Channel Q. Drop the subject. Weekdays, 10 to 1 Pacific, 1 to 4 Eastern on Channel Q.